Happy 2020, everybody, and thank you for downloading the 42nd edition of Scoring at the Movies. We flap our lips about old sports flicks, and our lips are the villains who will spoil this movie. I'm the baseball-obsessed nerd who's constantly pushing back his black rim glasses, which I'll do right now, and crushing on the sexy lifeguard, Ryan Ellis. And here's the guy who once got me into the biggest pickle anyone has ever seen, and who's often killing me, Smalls. He's killing me! Chris Gregorio. Thanks, Ryan. I think it's the only time in my life anyone's ever called me small. It kind of warms my heart a little Smalls. bit. Smalls. Smalls. I did have to zip line my way in here on some sort of half-hearted contraption to uh, Rube... What's it? A Rube Goldberg device yes, to Rube. get past the dual beasts that you have guarding the premises <laughs> and your secret stash of old-timey baseballs in the basement. I have told you that these dogs are, I don't know, 20 times the size of the actual dog. The Jaws level size. The shark from Jaws. <laughs> Their combined body weight that's actually only a combined 10 pounds between the two Our of them. Our dogs, yeah. But even in this movie, they make the dog out to be bigger than Bruce from oh Jaws, God, really. Yeah. And it's all squints with his lying stories. Forever. Forever. <laughs> scaring these kids. And they should have somehow seen that dog somewhere to realize it's not as big. They actually do see... Well, obviously, Squints does when they do that whole Rube Goldberg segment you're talking about, the sequence where they're trying to get the ball back. Yeah. He's the one that can actually see the dog's paws and probably the dog itself and still doesn't tell them the truth. So he's a big liar. One of my biggest issues with this movie is exactly what you just said. The whole idea is that, you know, as a kid, you build things up in your mind out of ignorance as much as anything. It's just part of the fun of it. It's just part of the fun of it, yeah. You've got that lively imagination, especially back in the 60s before TV and internet destroyed our ability to (laughs) be imaginative for ourselves. So you build something up to be more than it is, and I get that idea. And initially, it makes a lot of sense. But then as soon as they start climbing the fence and looking over and peering through the hole or going up to the treehouse and looking down... They should see the dog. At one point or other, they all see the dog. Right, Squints has the best view, I guess, because he's looking the most. But you're right, they all could have seen it. At that point, you all know it's just a dog. And it's a very big dog. Mm -hmm. But the whole notion of the beast should have, I think, gone out the window at that point. Well, also, did you notice the size of this dog's balls? Hercules has gigantic testicles. (laughs) When he's chasing Benny... I don't know if that dog was erect, but he sure as hell was... What do you want to call it? Ready to go. It's a good thing we're not swearing or anything, right? Let's make this a real family-friendly episode. <laughs> oh, incidentally, did you see the size of the nuts on that thing? Well, that's PG on TV, isn't it? Balls, so nuts. It's not the size of the fight in the dog. It's the size of the balls on the dog. In this case, yeah. Such a huge part of the movie, that sequence. But it's fun. It's the kids enjoying the process, too. Yeah. Maybe that's why Rodriguez... What's his name? Benny the Jet Rodriguez. Benny the Jet. Maybe that's the reason he could outrun... Hercules uh, yeah, <laughs> Hercules was so slowed and dragged down by his enormous scrotum that he was a little slow off the hop. Yeah. It would feel weird to have that bang against your back legs constantly. Hey, don't I know it, Ryan. Don't I <laughs> you know it. You go through it every day. Yeah. Let's pop open that beer here. What do you got? Oh, I've got the go-ahead. A New Year's beer, the go-ahead. That makes sense. I think I've had this before, but it's one of my favorite baseball-themed beers, so I thought I'd give it another go for this podcast. Does it say Left Field Brewery? Le- yeah, Left Field Brewery. Oh, you mentioned that before, okay. I yeah. recognize that name. They have another one called Squeeze Play that I would have really loved to have for this, just because the final play of the Dodgers-Giants game at the end of the movie, where he steals home. Not quite a suicide squeeze, but it's as close as you're going to get in beer form. But they didn't have any, so... Well, the we movie are. is supposed to be, at that point, 
what, the 80s, I guess, or the early 90s? Well, it's supposed to be, I guess, at that point. The movie's in 93, so maybe that's supposed to be 92, 93. Yeah. And the older Benny, wait, that would be 30 years later. It can't be that. He would be in his 40s. Anyway, it's supposed to be many years later. Oh, that's and true. And Stealing Home was way more common. Well, back actually in the 60s and the 50s and the 40s and so on. That was really common back then. Even Babe Ruth stole a lot of bases. We'll talk about Babe Ruth in this podcast. But you don't really see it almost ever anymore. And when it happens, it's a big deal. You get on all the highlight packages. But even in the, oh, but my even God. in the 80s and 90s, you saw it sometimes, maybe relatively often. You saw suicide squeezes. Now everyone says with baseball metrics, it's not a good idea, saber metrics, to do that kind of stuff. Now, did you think when Smalls, grown-up Smalls anyway, mm-hmm. was doing the broadcasts of that game? And a little biased? A, a little biased, but B, a terrible sports broadcaster because his description of the play was horrible. All they kept doing was reiterating, I can't believe it! I can't believe it! Describe the play. What's happening? I don't know. <laughs> and he gets up and he high-fives everybody. That's dead air, man. What are you doing? Come on. <laughs> Get back on the job. I know it's your buddy. I thought the same thing. Arliss Howard plays him, the older version. He's in Moneyball as well. He's the owner of the Red Sox you see at the end of Moneyball. Oh, and he's really? in Full Metal Jacket before this. That's probably his biggest role. He's Cowboy mm. in that, the one who gets shot in Vietnam. But yeah, he plays the older Smalls, and he does an okay job with that. I forgot he's the very first character we see, though, because you see him going to work. Exactly. And then all of his stuff in the booth and his old pictures and whatnot. And this is a kid who didn't know anything about baseball when it gets going. So that's his arc, is that he didn't really even care about baseball. didn't dislike it. But he's the nerd with the erector set who gets straight A pluses and who learns how to be an athlete. I can relate to him in a lot of ways, though, because I was on my own. I wasn't friendless, but I didn't have a lot of friends either when I was about this age. What, was he supposed to be 10 or 12, I guess? This was based on a book, right? Oh, was it? I don't know. Yeah. It doesn't say that here in the IMDb. It's just written by the director, David Mickey Evans and Robert Gunter. It doesn't say based on a book like it usually does I in think this there's, section. There's a book called Boys of Summer, which I understand was meant to be the original title for this movie, too, and it changed in production, as it often does. And in the book, I think the kids are meant to be around 10, okay. but for the movie, they made them a little older, somewhere closer to 12, which is probably a good thing, because some of the horny young kids stuff would have been... It's kind of creepy as it is, but it would have been super creepy if you got 10-year-old boys. You wouldn't likely be doing it at all if you're 10 years old. Not unless you're a very advanced 10-year-old, mm-hmm. and I certainly was not. And then of all nine of them, you might have two or three or four that might be like that, but not all nine of them. As it was, I found it super weird to watch the pudgy kid Porter, right? What's his name? Pam. Pam, is his name. yeah. Now, Hamilton that, Porter. That pool scene where he's trying to mac on all the yeah. older women and he's That's flexing. funny. He's the funniest of all the kids. Oh, he's by far the funniest of all. But it also came off super creepy because he looks like a young boy. It's not like you're like a 15-year-old kid that you're awkward, but at least you can see the adult coming out. He still looks like he's nine years old, even if he's meant to be closer to 12. And he's flexing and kissy face the middle-aged women kind of stuff. And then cannonball! And soaks them, which is also one of those tall tale kind of things. You could argue that Arliss Howard's version of this as the older Scotty Smalls, probably at that point Scott Smalls, (laughs) he's probably not Scotty at that age. I still go by Smalls. Although when you're a guy who plays in our team who likes to be called Scotty and he's 40 some odd years old. That's true. But anyway, maybe that's another tall tale that he creates a cannonball wave that's that big from him. There's no way. It would barely get over the side of the pool and splash them five feet away or whatever they are, ten feet away from the edge of the pool. There's an element of this movie that is a man's recollections, right? So you build things up in your mind's eye over the years and your recollections of things change as you tell yourself the story over and over and over. So I think that's exactly what that is. You remembering it but remembering it in the melodramatic, nth-degree kind of version of it. And the dog is the strongest version of that by being enormous and being the way he is. He just wants to play in the end. When he chases Benny, you realize in the end he just wanted to play with him. I understand why 
adult smalls in his recollection, especially early on, before they see the dog. I understand why they build the dog up in the telling of the tale to be this big oh, thing. Oh, they haven't seen it, fine, I get that yeah. too. Yeah. But once they see the dog, they see the reality of it, even in the retelling as an adult man, that's where I wish they had maybe changed the narrative a little bit. Although I do definitely relate to the kids after all the shenanigans go down and they have to knock on the back door of James Earl Jones's house and tell him what happened. When he said, well, why didn't you just knock? I would have gotten the ball for you. Squids! Oh, squids! <laughs> that is definitely something I can relate to from my childhood. You lose a ball in your neighbor's backyard or that weird neighbor you don't know. Oh, what do I do now? I don't know how. What am I talking about? From my childhood. This I happened to us this past this summer. This happened to us this past summer. <laughs> Ryan, get the rake. We need two 40-year-old men leaning over the neighbor's fence with a rake trying to pull a basketball back. In the end, I had to go into the yard several times. Other times we played, it was just easier to do that because it went too far away for us to use the rake-shovel combination and you on a ladder as well. And yeah. I felt a little weird doing it, but they never saw me. I don't know if they would have said anything anyway. <laughs> hey, you punk kids, get out of my backyard. Sorry, mister. <laughs> Even then, we didn't ring the guy's doorbell or anything and say, no. hey, we're going to pop in your backyard for a minute, okay? <laughs> well, the flip side of that is that our neighbors in this little area where we are, not that neighbor, but kids that live beside us, Bev told them at one point, if the ball goes in our backyard, just go ahead and go get it. We don't care. And we saw them back there every once in a while in the summer, and it's fine. No, it's mine now. <laughs> Sucks to you. Go buy another ball. So hopefully our, Here's 98 cents. <laughs> so hopefully the neighbor behind us would have felt the same way if they ever saw me sneaking in there. Okay, so, Le Petit Champ, the small champ, I don't know, smalls champ. In Canada, in Quebec specifically, Le Petit Champ. Champ, you know, Sean, how do you say Little Champ, okay. Was released by 20th Century Fox on April 7th, 1993. It wasn't a Herculean hit, Herculean, but it wasn't a failure either. In fact, it was 50th at the 1993 U.S. box office. It made more money than The Program and Rudy, which we're going to do soon, but it made less than Rookie of the Year and Cool Runnings, which we covered basically a year ago. 1993 was quite the year for mediocre sports movies, eh? Well, there's five right there I mentioned. I didn't look beyond to see what else may have been released. When did Mighty Ducks come out? No, 92. 92, 92 was a big year for sports movies. That was White Man Can't Jump and Mighty Ducks and League of Their Own. And there were a couple kids from this in Mighty Ducks. Right, yeah. Well, Mike Vitar, who plays Benny the Jet, the main character. Well, I guess actually Smalls, but the secondary character, Benny the Jet was in two of the sequels of the Mighty Ducks films. He wasn't in the first one. And then I didn't recognize him, Brandon Adams, who is Kenny as the pitcher. Yes. He is Jesse in, I think, the first... He was definitely in the first one. I don't know if he was in the sequels, but he was one of the kids on the Ducks. First two Mighty Ducks, yeah. He was in the first two. I've got it here. So they were both in the Mighty Ducks films the year before and then the years that followed. And there's a sequel to this, a straight-to-video movie that came out in 2005. And David Mickey Emmons also wrote and directed that one. But the only character who comes back... Well, the only actor who comes back, I should say, is James Earl Jones as Mr. Myrtle. Is that the one with Billy Bob in it? Billy Bob. You're Jordan? thinking of Bad News Bears. Bad News the Bears. Remake. That's same year though, 2005. You're right. Rotten Tomatoes number 61 percent of critics. That's it. Barely a fresh tomato. 5.9 out of 10 as an average, but 89 percent of audiences. What? The audiences nearly make this a 90 percent in favor of type movie. That's surprising that they like it that much. But then again, I'll give you my score right now. I'd say this is a seven out of ten to be generous, really. But yeah. nostalgia, because this movie, and I'll do my nutshell in a second, but this movie could easily be called Nostalgia Inc. for nutshell. Yes. And that nostalgia bumps up to at least an eight. When we first talked about doing the podcast, my thought to you was, well, let's do some movies from the era I remember as a kid and see whether I still have a fondness for them. This movie, even though it was made in the nineties strikes me as an author or filmmaker who was like, I want to do that same thing, but from my childhood in the 60s. And let's look at all the fun times I had in my summers playing Sandlot Baseball. My summers weren't solitary, but I spent a lot of time 
up north with family or with one or two friends, going out with a group of guys to a sandlot and playing ball all day or something. Almost was, every day. Yeah, it was not something I ever did. I played some softball or baseball as, as a young kid and organized. That's once a week, though. Yeah, it's once a week, and that's an organized thing. That's like the snotty kids that you see once in this movie roll up and then challenge everyone to a game. I never did figure out, incidentally, why did they show up? They showed up just to rag on the kids. At first I thought, oh, they want to use the diamond. But then they spit on the diamond. We would never play on this piece of garbage. they have a nice field. They have a nice field. Why were they there? They were there just to insult each other? I think that was their way of saying, we want to play, but we don't want to look pathetic. I guess. So we'll goad you instead. And that's one of the things about this movie, and we'll get into the big thing at the pool in a second. This will lead us into that. Some of the things that don't age very well. One of them would be the ultimate insult that gets that game going. You play like a girl! Yeah. Doesn't age very well. Neither does the using dip. Now, that's not politically incorrect. We've just found out in the last five or ten years that dip is seriously bad for people to do. Stone Cold Steve Austin, the wrestler, has talked about that in his podcast, where he used to use dip and found out how cancerous that can be oh, it's super and how cancerous. dangerous it is. Yeah. He stopped doing it altogether. I think he cold turkey did because he found out how bad it was. Way worse than smoking, apparently. But yeah. they do it in here, and of course it leads to the vomiting thing, which is probably also one of those things you could argue is embellished by the older smalls, just how bad the puking was. Okay, that was super gross, and yeah. I, I did not appreciate that. Haven't I watched, I think, four things yesterday, a movie and three TV shows, and I think every one of them had puking. What is this puking thing? And this movie is 26, well, I guess now 27 years old. Yeah, I didn't get that. I don't know why people have to be puking. But anyway, the thing that ages the worst would be the, I guess you got to call it this, even though I think it's always strong to put it this way, sexual assault. And this is the yeah. nutshell. Because, of course, Squints does con the lifeguard, Wendy Peppercorn, into kissing him. In a nutshell, sexually harass a pretty teenager you have a crush on, and maybe someday she'll have a crush on you too. They get married at the end of all. Well, sexual... she's even waving back at him and smiling at him. Immediately thereafter, yeah. like kicks him out. And then Not like, even oh, days dude. later, it's minutes later. Yeah, I have some definitely thoughts about that too. But as far as like the dip thing goes, I didn't mind that because it is reminiscent of something idiot kids would do, particularly in the 60s, and particularly when baseball players were still doing that as a matter of course, right? They still got the chaw on their lip all the time before they gave way to Big League Chew or something right. instead, or sunflower seeds. But yeah, that kiss thing was super creepy, super weird. I thought they were going to go a different and even grosser route when he's like, I can't take it anymore. She's lotioning. She's oiling and lotioning, lotioning and lotioning and, lotioning oh and oiling. As it turns out, of course, he fakes drowning, so she's kissing him. But what threw me off was, at a certain point, okay, she's giving him mouth-to-mouth. There's a huge group of people watching this happen, right? And yes, some of them are the friends of Squints, but there's a bunch of older people. Other out, lifeguards also. Other lifeguards. They're watching her do this. At a certain point, he smiles, gives everybody the slow-motion wink, mm-hmm. and then lies back down. And then she goes in for more, and then that's when he grabs her head. And at the point when he sits up, do the other lifeguards not say, like, Oh, hold on, Wendy, he's okay, let's just check him out. Not only was it creepiness, but it's not good for you to have somebody giving you mouth-to-mouth. Unnecessarily? Unnecessarily. Oh, like, okay. If you want yeah. Since this era, they've come to realize, I think chest compressions are actually as effective as mouth-to-mouth. Like as, a bellows kind of thing, plunge it out of you? And I think there's the possibility, if you're giving mouth-to-mouth and blowing into somebody, that you can force water further down. Oh, really? And, okay. I think. Well, like, people not, in movies years since I have gotten this. this wrong forever. You rarely see people do it right. I think maybe Baywatch got it right, and they really should have, being a show all about lifeguards. Really? I paid no but, attention to Baywatch, except for very certain details <laughs> of Baywatch, fair. Ryan. I may be even wrong about that. Maybe Baywatch got that wrong, too. But you're supposed to tilt the head back so that you open up the airway, because if you just blow into somebody who's laying flat, you're blowing into their stomach. Okay. Because the goof section on the IMDb will talk about how that's not the way to do it. It's been years since I did my first aid certification stuff, and you are definitely supposed to turn them on their sides periodically and stuff like that. Right, too. Yeah, yeah. I think for a similar reason as to people who are vomiting and you know, being yes. sick because you don't want them drowning on the stuff that they cough mm-hmm. up, ultimately. Yeah, so Marley Shelton does play this lifeguard, and she was only about 19. She's the same age as me, born in 1974. 
So about 19, maybe even 18 when they shot the movie, something like that anyway. How old do you think her character was meant to be? Probably about the same age, give or take. You think about 19? Well, she maybe was supposed to be 15 or 16, but... She's been molested by a 12-year-old boy. And then ends up marrying him, having, what did they say, nine kids, ten kids? Oh my god, it's so prolific. I don't want to dwell on this too much, because he was a kid and everything, and I guess you could say it worked out. But I remember feeling weird about that years ago, even before, if I even am now, woke, I felt weird about that. I saw this movie for the first time, I feel like when I was an adult, maybe the late 90s for the first time. And I don't think I liked that moment all that much then. If it's supposed to be funny, I guess it is. That's one of those moments that we might have lost the ability to figure out over time what the intention was. Almost like when we looked at The Longest Yard and you have the cross-dressing yes. cheerleaders. And they make and fun of them, yeah. In a world where we've seen all kinds of prison dramas played out for dramatic effect. Things like Oz and stuff have characters like that. And so I'm seeing cross-dressing cheerleaders on the sidelines of an inmate's football game. Like, okay, sure, why not? And then we're looking at it thinking, is that meant to be funny? We didn't we... laugh. We said in that podcast it didn't make us laugh. But it was played for comedic but effects. But in 1974, that movie was one of the top movies of the year, one of the top comedies of the year, and I guess people thought that was funny. Yeah, and I guess that's a similar thing with this. In the 90s, that scoundrel kid that found a way to con a pretty lifeguard into giving him a kiss unwittingly would have been played for comedy, but... 25 years later and cranky old man Chris later. But I'm saying even before 25 years later that felt weird. Yeah. In watching this, I don't think I ever saw the entire movie as a kid. One other movie that actually is aged badly in the sexual assault kind of way was in Revenge of the Nerds, which I haven't seen in its entirety in a long time either, but people have talked about how Lewis rapes Betty in that movie and then she ends up falling for him because he's really good at oral sex, I guess. (laughs) And how she never knows it's not actually Ted McGinley doing this rather than this nerdy guy. Anyway, we got way off on that tangent there but it's one of the things about this movie doesn't age all that well and there's a few things they play like a girl as much as i didn't really understand ultimately why the team with their fancy uniforms and fancy bikes rolled up in the diamond what i did like was the jawing back and forth and the terrible insults yes they are child's insults right you bob for apples in the toilet and you like it i think that's deliberately bad writing it is when you're a 10 year old boy and you're trading insults they might get a little more blue right than you would get in a pg yeah these kids don't swear even in 62 they probably would have. Of course. But the quality of insult is on par. I remember jawing with my friends or schoolyard nemeses when I was 10 years old. And yeah, I would say stupid stuff that made no sense in retrospect, but fired everybody up. And that's what they did here. I liked how in the game, they just whipped them. Oh, yeah. Even Smalls is getting hits. Even Smalls is And they even say, Benny's the only one that can actually play. The rival guy even says, Rodriguez is the only guy who's any good out of all you, and yet they beat the living hell out of them. I wondered if that was because... Whether they were trying to imply that they were getting whooped because Ham was so in everybody's head mm-hmm. that they just couldn't play their normal game. And those were lame insults. We've heard those a ton of times from catchers in other movies and just hear about in reality that catchers will get under batter's skin. Even a 30-year-old catcher will do this kind of stuff, I guess. Oh, you see I don't it, think it's usually it as Bush League as... Yeah, I don't know if it's Bush League as this. I don't know if it's... Uh, well, Major League actually shows that he says things like, your wife was at my house last night. Maybe they still do that kind of thing. I don't know. I've heard it's more a matter if he just plants something negative in his head. Oh, this guy's good for a double play. The equivalent of rec league softball when a batter comes up to the play, you're like, all right, guys, come in. Shallow, come on, no power. Getting into somebody's My favorite head. thing, I think, in ever playing softball is when people do that to the women. And I play with a lot of women who've popped it over their heads and had triples or even home runs when they do that. You've been burned by your own idiocy, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I don't have a ton of power either. I'm not just saying that women can't do it, but I do love seeing when they're vindicated. Yeah, it brings a smile to my face. Now, we've been talking about the nostalgia of it. This movie is related in a lot of ways, and I think it's deliberately related to two 80s movies, Stand By Me, and that's actually quite a serious film. Yeah, to find a dead body. The kids nearly get killed by Ace. But the other reminiscent one, especially the narration, is like a Christmas story. 
where it's not really yeah. all that well read. And it's funny, too, it's not Arliss Howard doing the narration. It is the director, David Mickey Evans, who's doing the narration. And he narrates the sequel, the straight-to-video sequel. He's making another sequel, by the way, or at least in pre-production. Maybe it'll never get made, but they're trying to make another sequel. I think that sequel, the straight-to-video one, used their kids. It looked like when I was just glancing at the credits and whatnot. And then Mr. Myrtle is back again. And it sounds like the storyline's the same thing all over again. Oh, there's this big dog and this scary guy. We can't go over there and get our ball back. Are they just going to repeat the same storyline every 20 to 30 years? Hey, look, it's the 1990s now when they're playing softball in the sandlot, and it's the 2010s, and I they're still so. playing softball in the sandlot. Well, when Smalls first comes across them, he says it was like they're playing an endless dream game. No, they're not. They're practicing. There's only eight of them. They're not playing an endless dream game. It's very Field of Dreams-esque because there's only eight of them. They were the ones that were banned in 1918, 1919, whatever the year was they were banned. Yeah. Rodriguez, when he meets Smalls and he brings him on and everyone's like, oh, we don't want this kid. A, I didn't understand why they were so anti this yeah. kid. It they're not busy. They have time. It's 10 in the morning. He missed one ball. Then he just happens to less Nesman a ball. Yeah. <laughs> You've seen WPKRP in Cincinnati? yeah. But he puts his arm out, just happens to catch, and suddenly, oh, he's okay. And then you never see Smalls be bad again. Not that that bad, at least. That turned around real quick. And this group of kids, too. This random kid shows up, and they are the meanest to him you've ever seen. Despite the fact that the only cool kid in the bunch is standing up for him. They still have it out for him. You think they would be cool based on his recommendation alone. Exactly. Well, Betty likes him. We have to like him, too. And all these other kids, they're all the biggest dorks you're ever going to meet. The stereotypical 60s dorks. Super skinny, big glasses. Mm. But yeah, they talk about, he's going to be our ninth, and now we have a full team, we can play games. They never play a single game, <laughs> except when these other kids come up and goad them into doing so. Otherwise, it's like you said, they're just out there shagging balls all day long and having one endless practice, which is fine, but mm-hmm. the whole ninth man thing, I didn't understand the point of. That's not an endless dream game at all. No. It's a practice. I think one of the reasons why Scotty is not cool, incidentally... Now, first of all, he does move there with his family, ending fifth grade. Only two weeks left in school. As he says, it's impossible to make friends in two weeks. Yeah. And then you go into the summer, and then because Benny's so nice to him... Although, even the very first time you see Benny, he does give him a bit of the cold shoulder. A little bit. Very soon after, he accepts him. But part of the problem, I think, maybe... I never noticed that until this viewing. That house is pink. You can't be cool in the 60s with a pink house. (laughs) Okay. This isn't Barbados. I thought, oh <laughs> I thought it might be his ridiculous hat that he shows up with. Well, yes. Where did he get that And hat? the shorts he's wearing and the shirt he's wearing. It was a ball cap, and it had the longest bill. Which he's wearing cap. as the old version, he too. He is, too. I think it's supposed to be his dad's hat. But where did he get it? I've never seen a hat like that. Even if you look at old time. Is it a fishing hat? I don't think so. I've never seen a fishing hat look like that. What oh, it okay. reminded me of was a women's gardening hat from that era, but those tended uh-huh. to be much wider around, right, to cover your Yeah, more face. of a sombrero kind of hat. Kind cover of your neck, hat. too. I wasn't thinking about those. It just sort of goes half around. But okay. you look at old-timey baseball hats, the brims were super short, and they gradually lengthened to kind of like a modern length. But this thing was a foot and a half long. It looked mm. like a plague doctor's mask bill. It was the weirdest-looking thing I've ever seen. Yeah, Benny gives him the hat and the glove. Apparently, Benny must be coming from a relatively affluent family in the 60s because he's got spares of everything to give away to some kid he doesn't even know, just mm. on a whim, but doesn't have 98 cents to buy a new baseball when they lose <laughs> it, apparently. Yeah, they need to get more balls and be prepared. I don't know if we said already, but it's set in the summer of 62. And I know there have been several movies that have been covered on this channel in that year alone. American Graffiti was set in 62. And I feel like something Bev and I did recently, maybe Green Book was set that exact same year. And American Graffiti ends at the end of the summer. And this is ending at the end of the summer as well. Did you know this was shot, of all places, in Utah? You look on the hmm. filming locations thing on IMDb and every location. It doesn't even say Hollywood at all. It's just Utah. 
it is interesting that it was set in the summer of 62, and yet the character they so revere in this movie was Babe Ruth. Yeah, that should have been probably Hank Aaron, who's briefly mentioned with a baseball card. Ruth says, can I have this card? might be valuable someday. It's, uh, yeah, that's right. Or Mays, actually Mays and exactly. Mantle. Maze, Mantle, even Maris, DiMaggio. We're focusing on Yankees, and I'm only doing that because I assume they're Yankee fans since they love Babe Ruth. But mm-hmm. there's a number of usual Williams, Ted Williams. You could so say we're many. still not that far away from being retired, and yet Babe Ruth is the guy. I wonder what it was about Ruth specifically that the author wanted to focus on him. Well, it could be his favorite player that's ever played, for one thing, so he's being biased that way. Let's not forget, though, there are very few players in any sport where you can say, that is the greatest name. Doesn't mean he's the best player necessarily, although Ruth certainly, statistically, is, if not the greatest player, he's right there anyway. But just as far as the name in the sport, hard to do with football. Hockey, not so hard. It's probably Gretzky. Basketball is probably Jordan, although there's arguments. But in baseball, I'm not talking about the most talented. I'm talking about the name of the sport that the average person who doesn't know anything about baseball would say. It is Babe Ruth. Maybe that's why they picked him. I guess. And he also has a ton of nicknames that you can throw around. Yeah, and they do it constantly. Yeah, the Sultan of Swat, the Great Bambino. I guess it also plays into some of the gags that they throw out, like Ham calling his shot in that game against the jerk kids and... The line that Smalls has when he's talking about the ball he stole from his stepdad. I can't remember. It had some girl's name, Baby Ruth or something Mm -hmm. on it. So I guess it plays into a number of gags that the author wanted in the book as well. Just like it was a weird choice to have a dream sequence with the babe Mm -hmm. showing up in the middle or towards the end. He only has one scene the whole movie. And it's a short one too. It's like a 90 second cameo. Walks into the kid's closet. (laughs) Well, a little longer than that, but it's not a long scene at all. Art Lafleur. We mentioned Field of Dreams already. Yeah. He is the first baseman, Chick Gandel, in that movie. And now he's playing Babe Ruth four years later in this film. And he's actually got a good sense of humor, too. He shrugs off the nicknames. Yeah, I've heard all before. Not a big deal, kid. <laughs> he even calls him Keed, which apparently is what Ruth would say instead of kid. would say Keed. Really? That's what I, I've read I before. I up on that. Now, they mentioned early on, I think it's Arliss Howard in the voiceover. Well, no, sorry, it'd be David Mickey Evans. Anyway, the voiceover mentions that Ruth's called shot home run in the 32 World Series against the Cubs. They didn't call it walk-offs back in 1993, but it was a walk-off home run in the ninth inning. Well, no, it wasn't. It was in Chicago, from what I understand. It was in the fifth inning, and it just gave them the lead. They won that game. And Ruth apparently, well, then again, there's always been these mixed stories about whether or not he actually called that shot. Yeah, exactly. He pointed to the center field fence, and he was being goaded by the Chicago bench. And he's basically saying, nah, I don't care what you say to me. I can do what I want to do. And maybe he called a shot, and maybe he didn't. But they get their facts wrong. It's so much easier now, because you look on baseball reference, you see the whole game laid out. You can look at the pitch count it was. You look at when you look at all that stuff in baseball reference. You couldn't do that in 1993. It's one of those stories that I've always loved because it makes no logical sense, right? If you're a batter, you want to do nothing to go to the pitcher, like pointing to center field, calling your shot. That would work against you, right? Because you would get hit in the head for one thing. Yeah, you'd probably get plunked. In which case, you're just gonna walk anyway. Especially back in 1932. Yeah, especially back then. And even these days, players, more so now probably than 80 years ago or more when Ruth was playing, but they go to the extreme degree to make sure they don't say anything that might incite the other team to either play better or do anything that might work against them. So I don't want to motivate them. It seems counterintuitive that as a player you would ever, in the middle of a game, point to center field to call your shot, but it's such a good story. I want it to be true. I don't know that it is, and like you said, there's no definitive evidence one way or the other because there's no recording of the game that would display it to the degree that you could say, oh yeah, he called a home run shot to center field, but it fits the legend of the man, too, because nobody else is so synonymous with home runs in the sport 
even though he no longer holds any kind of home run record, really. For a long time, he had the single-season record, and then he had the all-time record. Then Aaron passed him for the all-time record, but yeah. Aaron never even got close to the single-season record. So Ruth had both of those for a while for a and while. was second in one of them. Now Bonds passed him in both, but of course he's tainted by being an ass and by the steroid stuff, the accused steroid stuff. And it's a different era also. When you look at Babe Ruth statistically, in the era in which he started to hit home runs, 30, 40 home runs. No one else was doing it. The first time he won the home run title, he had something like triple the number of home runs the second place person in the league had. When Bonds was doing it, it was an incredible feat, regardless of whether or not it's tainted by the scandal surrounding him. But Sosa still had 50-plus or even 60-plus. Yeah, it wasn't that far behind Maguire and Sosa battling it out. Mm -hmm. And, well, I guess this past year we've had a bit of a resurgence of the home run ball, but we went for years where 40 or 50 was an astounding number in modern baseball. But even then, Babe Ruth was doing it in an era where... 12 was an astounding number. So this is why I say no man is so synonymous, in my mind anyway, with the home run, because he really redefined the sport and what it meant to hit a home run and the importance of hitting home runs. But then the babe in this movie, the ghostly figure, comes to Benny the Jet to inspire him to try to steal that ball back from Hercules. And the whole sequence that ends with the heavy, quote-unquote, fence coming down on Hercules. If it was that heavy, because they have this whole sort of He should have been either badly hurt or dead, and when they pull the fence off him, he's fine. But that's, of course, when Small basically saves him, and then finally the dog is... I think the dog was trying to play with Benny in the first place, running all the way through. They ruin a picnic, but more than that, they ruin that Wolfman movie, because the dog tears the screen. screen. (laughs) They're trying to watch the Wolfman in the middle of the afternoon in the summer. Come on, leave them alone. How many times did the kids, in their lame brain schemes to get the ball back, how many times did they have the ball... And then drop the ball yeah. as the dog The vacuum came out. thing did. The dog catches it when they do the flip trick with the erector set. That would have worked for sure more than anything else. And I love the way the dog is, as I said before, bigger than the shark and jaws in their yeah. mind as it leaps up. Well, you see it coming. There's a point of view shot. It's coming to the fence and then suddenly it's from the left and it's a tall tail, basically. If there's one thing I learned from that particular shot of the dog catching the ball, that catapult erector set shot, it's that Benny... The Jet Rodriguez had a future in baseball as a pinch runner because he had to have been a terrible fielder. I don't know if we ever saw him really field in this movie. He was always the no. one shagging balls out to other players, right? Smalls and it catches that ball irrationally, the Les Nessman catch, and he says, no, it was when he gives him the Babe Ruth ball. Your ball, you're up. Yeah. And then he plays left center field where Smalls have been playing, but I don't think he ever catches he the ball. Actually, catches the ball. When the erector set catapult launches the ball, you see Benny go back. He goes, I got it, I got it. And he's going back, and he's a ways away from the fence. It looks like that erector set thing launched the ball deep. But then the dog catches the ball, and the ball was just barely going to clear the fence, if at all, when he catches it. I'm like, well, if that's the case, then if you're going to catch the ball, you should be right up against the fence almost. You badly misplayed that fly ball, Benny. I'm not, the, I'm not the best at judging fly balls myself, but you're right. Yeah, maybe he's not a very good player. Don't they say in the game as the older Benny when he steals home for the Dodgers that he is pinch running? He is pinch running. That's yeah. what I mean. He found a niche. He's as just a, a pinch as, runner. He's, he's just Gerard Dyson of the Sandlot. Or <laughs> maybe something. some pitch hitting, too. He seems like he's a pretty good hitter. Yeah, Maybe okay. he can't feel to save his life. Maybe he's got a future as a DH, although he's playing for the Dodgers. So there's no DH. Man, this guy should have signed with a different team. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I did enjoy, speaking of poor fielding, though, the first attempt by Smalls to catch a ball, the cardinal sin of placing your head or your face right behind the glove as you're trying to catch it, and it womp. A friend of ours got hurt this year in our CBC League playoffs doing something like that, and he's a good player, too. Yeah. I say he was a good player. He's not dead. He's a good player. (laughs) (laughs) He was a good player. He will live on. He's been ruined by (laughs) co-ed rec league softball. (laughs) 
Well, he took his glasses in his eye when the ball hit him in the face, though. So oh, I no, saw the it, pictures a few days ago. He looked bad. It was bad. It I was heard bad. about it months ago. I only saw the pictures just recently. This is why I tell anybody that's learning, never line up your glove right in front yeah. of your face. Because I don't care how good you are, you're going to miss one every yeah. so often. You don't want your face to be behind your glove when you do. I don't remember ever being a bad baseball player. I'm certainly not the best baseball player now, but I don't remember ever being bad at catching the ball. I'm not the best athlete at all. There's some sports where I'm awkward as hell at them. Some elements <laughs> of basketball, I'm awkward. I might as well be as bad as Scotty Smalls as a baseball in this, but I don't remember ever being somebody who couldn't catch a ball. There's the whole subplot of Smalls trying to get his stepdad to teach him how yeah, to... Yeah, Dennis Leary. Who does play... Interesting casting. In the same years as he's in Demolition Man... As the typical Dennis Leary fast-talking. He's not a bad guy. He's villainized by the cops in that movie, but the exact same year as this. But no man, maybe unwittingly, maybe intentionally, I don't know, but comes across more as a jerk. He exudes jerk. It doesn't matter what he does. And he doesn't do anything overtly jerk-ish in this movie, Mm -hmm. necessarily. He's a little standoffish to the kid at times, but he's a fine guy. But he just exudes this vibe of, I'm kind of the dick of a stepdad. Do you think it was miscasting then, or good casting? I think it was good casting, because the way Smalls describes him early on is they had trouble connecting. Bill, uh, dad, dad, uh, Bill. (laughs) He does that constantly. So I think it works. Eventually he convinces them, okay, show me how to throw a ball and catch a ball, and they do. And you see Smalls go in the backyard and try to figure out how to throw. And it got me thinking, do I remember learning oh, yeah. how to catch and throw and i don't i don't know because throwing is harder to learn than catching i bet is it certainly is for smalls to learn how to throw a ball effectively at least is a lot more difficult that's than... something in this movie that's never really addressed because he doesn't want to throw the ball it's probably just playing for comedy that he can't yeah. literally just to go up he and just walks hand it, it to in. people yeah we see him catch that one ball and suddenly oh he's fine okay so you can believe that he maybe will start to learn how to catch but we never see him learn how to throw and yet somehow he must be able to i guess but do you remember when you learned how to throw or no catch? i don't no, I do remember throwing a ball against the side of the house by myself. Like I said, I spent a lot of time alone. I live in the country as well. It's part of it. I couldn't get to people the same way you could if you lived in the city. But I remember throwing a ball against the side of the house, and I was getting obsessed with baseball in 87 and 88. You would have been like... I was 13 and then 14. 13, 14. That's okay. when I was really becoming a huge baseball fan. And I would play by myself effectively, and that's where I used the wall for And I think that's where I would learn to catch, and I must learn how to throw. Before that, could I throw? I don't remember, but I guess so. I was racking my brain trying to remember because the earliest remembrance I have of playing t-ball when I was like six or seven years old. I didn't play that young, definitely, no. I know I played it. Oh, I I played younger than 13 or 14, though. I definitely played baseball, I think it was, when I was 10 or something like that. I don't remember specifically. How often have we seen, we've seen it in certainly Field of Dreams, like, hey, Dad, you want to have a catch kind of moment. But what if you can't catch? But there's like a mythos in cinema around a father teaching his son modern day or daughter son or daughter but in terms of older films it's always a son mm-hmm. how to throw how to catch having that backyard catch that whole thing i have no memory of that which isn't to say I, that my father didn't teach me i just don't remember and my mom did with me my dad never did no. my mom tried my mom couldn't throw overhand though she'd throw underhand and i was trying to learn how to play properly so i wouldn't really be catching anything uh, worthwhile then i started playing with my cousin and his friends because like i said my friends weren't all that close the ones i did have in school and we probably played at school i guess i don't remember yeah we played baseball in school we did that's true but my cousin and his friends, definitely. I think yeah. a lot of people call it box ball now. If you go by a school and you see a painted box on the size oh, yeah. of a strike zone on a wall. Yeah, we would play that We played well. that a lot. I was never very good at it compared to all of them. They were all better than me. I learned a lot from them, though. But when I got to be as good as whatever level I ever got to be, it's partly, if not mostly, because of that. I think that's pretty standard for young kids. I think we called it wall ball or something. But it's enough. eventually the same thing. You just draw the rectangle on the wall. They called it burby. Burby. I don't know I why. I wish I... Okay. Once you have the ability to catch and throw, you've developed a certain level of hand-eye coordination, and that transfers to any number of other games, right? Racket games, anything that involves swinging or using a stick. 
Like We've seen a miracle one. The goalie is practicing his hand-eye oh, with juggling, multiple yeah, balls. Against yeah. the wall, yeah. So it got me thinking, when did I learn to do that? Because it's how I learned how to play the racket sports, how to play golf. Without that initial skill, it would have been so much harder to do anything else. And I can't remember it. It's driving me crazy. But it made me also feel for Smalls a little bit because as a kid who's gotten to the age of whatever he's meant to be, 12 years old, he said grade 5, right? So maybe... He was ending grade 5, yeah. Would have been 11 or 12, I guess. To have gotten to that age and have never figured out how to throw a ball... He was always in his room. Even badly. You've never thrown anything? You've never thrown a paper plane? This kid must have been so coddled. There are some people, and obviously nerds that really fits this cliche, that just have no athletic talent at all, though. They might know what they're supposed to do, but they still can't make their brain do it. Try to throw left-handed. I don't know about you, but I cannot do it. I look like Scotty Smalls does when I try to throw left-handed. I have a suggestion, then, for our next softball season. Can we convince everybody on the team that you have to switch your handedness? (laughs) We all field offhand. So we'll go from first to last is what you want to happen then? Or maybe we win it all, Ryan. Maybe we're the Cinderella story. (laughs) The underdog teams keep winning in the championship, don't they? We haven't won in several years now. So James Earl Jones is, I guess, the biggest name on the whole cast. Karen Allen is the mom, and she's pretty fun in this. She wasn't really acting all that much anymore after this great performance in Raiders, and Starman was a couple years after Raiders. I don't know about you, Ryan, but I found her to be super attractive in this movie. And she's very cute. Yeah. Marley so. Shelton is the real can-you-score element would be Marley Shelton, obviously. Well, also the topless Patrick Renna as Ham, doing the, hey, ladies, flexing my ginger muscles at you. God, that's so awkward. But Karen Allen helps the score quotient. I'm going to choose to... Block out ham? (laughs) Inappropriately sexualize the only character in the movie that I'm certain is of the age of consent in this, because I don't know what... (laughs) Or the tiny squints when he goes on that diving board to do his really mean, dirty trick with Wendy. (laughs) 20-pound soaking wet squints. Holding his glasses the whole time, instead. When she pulls him out of the water, always holding his glasses, which should have been a tip-off if you didn't know the first time you see the movie, that he isn't actually drowned. There's a lot of tip-offs that she should have picked up on. So anyway, Karen Allen is attractive, and yeah. And, Not in the movie a lot, but she's fine. And Dennis Leary is certainly a man's man with that thick crop of chest hair just constantly mm. exuding over his only partially buttoned bowling shirts that he's wearing. That's why my mom liked him. <laughs> but James Earl Jones' Mr. Myrtle, I think, brings so much joy and life to his, what, five or ten minutes at the most screen time in this movie as Mr. Myrtle. Yeah, he's great. And it's a cameo role, effectively. He doesn't even like baseball I was reading, and yet he's in this, and again, we'll mention it, Field of Dreams, where he's one of the best things in the whole film. He has no baseball at all in this. He's not even anywhere near a baseball field. Chris is going to look up the James Earl Jones resume. So that was Jimmy Fox that his face was put over. He's supposed to have known George. I know George. George Herman Ruth. Anyway, I like James Earl Jones a lot on this small role. I think he's really a lot of fun in the whole thing of, come over and talk baseball with me, and you can have this ball that's signed by the 27 Yankees. And then when Smalls gives the ball to Bill, who's still mad and grounded me for ruining the Babe Ruth ball, it was not the right thing to do to take that ball, but God, I would be promoting the kid after giving me a better <laughs> ball than I already had. I was of conflicted feelings with that, because on the one hand, the Karen Allen character tells Smalls, you know you're not supposed to be looking at that stuff because Bill's brother or Bill's father or something gave him that sign. That's pretty special then. Yeah, so like okay. emotional connection to the ball itself in addition to the signature. But yeah, the 27 murderers row Yankees. Like, yeah, I'll take that. Please. And Please. all you have to do, all your kid, your stepkid has to do is go hang out with the guy he probably wants to hang out with anyway. Yeah. And I also love the touch that now Hercules is watching them play ball because the fence is broken down. And that's obviously a very metaphorical and lyrical actually touch. Yeah. The junkyard is no longer blocked off from the sandlot. That's one big open space and the dog's just their mascot yeah that was cute i got a lot of cool stuff you can have the ball and as long and these as other you... ones that have been lost you get those back too yeah and as long as you come to talk to me once a week about baseball we'll <laughs> twist call my it, arm call it an even trade i do this every day yeah 
And I agree with you, incidentally. James Earl Jones brings an awesome energy to his role, as small as it is. I was happy to see him in the movie. But I didn't love the fact that they took the picture. They showed the picture of him standing next to Babe Ruth. And who's the third in there? Is it Lou Gehrig? It might be Lou Gehrig. But it's Jimmy Fox in the actual picture, and they put his face over Jimmy Fox's face. He's in a Pittsburgh Pirates uniform when he's standing next to Babe Ruth. This is long before baseball integration yeah. right? there's no way in... Ruth retired in well I got him right here he retired in 35 and Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in 47 well apparently the major league players barnstormed a lot with black players so Babe Ruth would have played against black oh no people, absolutely absolutely but it, not the Pittsburgh Pirates it would have been that's the, the Kansas City Monarchs or something like that and actually Danunez the pitcher is wearing a Kansas City Monarchs hat which I thought was a great touch and you're absolutely right and I think Babe Ruth specifically got in trouble with Major League Baseball more than once because he continued to barnstorm after they told him to stop, because I guess you're diluting the brand of the Major League Baseball okay. teams if you give people the opportunity to see your biggest star elsewhere. So if you had just had a picture of James Earl Jones standing next to Babe Ruth wearing Kansas City Monarchs or just nondescript baseball yeah, uniforms, right. I think that would have been fantastic. Might have even stood up more if it had been something we didn't recognize. Yeah. I'm sure no kid under the age of whatever you're meant to market this movie to, 12-year-olds or whatever, mm. they're not going to catch that. It's not going to matter to them. Mm. But aside from that simple fact, James Earl Jones was awesome, and I was super jealous of his baseball memorabilia collection, oh, yeah. right down to all the photos and the old-timey uniform pieces he had hanging around the Which office. Which he can't even see anymore because he's maybe not fully blind. There's something on the IMDb about why is there a light on in his place. I mean, apparently people that are legally blind and maybe almost fully blind can still require some light to see maybe a tiny little bit. When they knock on his door in the backyard, the kids, the return Hercules, he doesn't even look towards them. Mm. Even if he can't make out detail, like you said, legally blind, assuming you could see a shadow or an outline of a person where they might be against the light, it doesn't look like he can even do that. Yeah, okay, it looks true. like he might be completely blind. And I guess as he describes it, he gets hit in the temple with a fastball or something, and he says, boom, the lights went out. The implication being he is totally blind. In which case, you're right. Why are the lights on? I don't know. Maybe he turned them on because he was inviting the kids in. <laughs> he knew they were going to be coming. Yeah. He heard the ruckus and said, okay, finally, I have some visitors. Yeah. I've seen into the future. I am James Earl Jones. Well, speaking of the racial element of this, <laughs> it is nice you've got in 1993, and maybe movies were really starting to do this at that point. They certainly do now. You've got the Hispanic leader of all of them, which is yeah. what Benny Rodriguez would be. And you've got a black kid, De Nunez, and you've got a ginger, <laughs> ham, and then a bunch of white kids. So it's mostly white kids, but... You've got a nice mix, for the most part, majority of white people. But at that point in America, there were still more white people than anything else anyway. So that, in a way, is an accurate cross-section for 1962. In Especially in a suburban neighborhood like that. Exactly. Yeah, I was going to say, in terms of suburbia and the way... In Utah, apparently. <laughs> suburban Utah. I'm not supposed to be Utah, but that's where they filmed it. They never actually specify where this They is probably happening. don't want to. It doesn't no. matter. It's any town USA. <laughs> Anytime, USA. I'll like stroke my wind chimes and close my screen door. <laughs> what do you think of Tom Guyry, who is the main character, Smalls? This was his debut film. The next year he's in Lassie, and then he went on to do Black Hawk Down and Mystic River. So his resume is pretty solid. He's fine. None of the kid I, actors stand out, do they? They all just deliver their lines at various levels. Of They're believable meh. kids. They're definitely not doing that thing that you see in the 30s and 40s movies. Yeah, stay here. Nah. Gee whiz, Every mister. kid seemed to talk like that. If you found a kid who was actually a good actor back then... That kid stood out. Now you see kid actors who are extraordinary over and over again. If you see Jojo Rabbit, great case in point, there are little kids too. Mm. The two main boys, well the main boy and then his buddy who's hilarious, and then the girl, she's not that young I guess, but now you find kid actors who are outstanding, but even the 1993, just okay, and when this movie's supposed to have been set, and then the Babe Ruth era, 
No, you weren't going to find too many good kid actors. Maybe that's the way they were directed. I don't know. None of these actors weren't anything all that big. Vitar and Adams went on to be in the Mighty Ducks movies, like we said, or had already been in the case of Adams. Yeah. The only actor that stood out in this movie to me was James Earl Jones. I mean, Dennis Leary had very little to do. Karen Allen had very little to do. Well, Patrick Renner is the funniest of the kids, at least, so he stands out in that way. I suppose so, yeah. And Benny is such a cool kid. He really is inclusive, and he tries his best, and he never loses patience with Smalls the way the rest of them do. He's surprised at how little Smalls knows, but he starts to realize, well, I'll mentor the kid. And he comes along <laughs> fast. So good on him. Now, the Patrick Renna character, Ham, at a certain point, once Smalls is accepted into the group, they have their little camp out thing in the treehouse. You're killing me, Smalls. You're killing me, Smalls. Honestly, I didn't realize that came from the Sandlot until I watched it right now. You're killing me, Smalls. Because there was a period in time in the mid-90s when that was something that kids You're just, killing me, whoever? No, they would just say, you're killing me, Smalls. At least in my group, that's what people would say to each well, other. This is what it was from. So I learned something. But he's making s'mores, and he's explaining to Smalls mm-hmm. what a s'more is. So he lays out the graham cracker, lays out the chocolate, as he says, the mallow, right? Just the marshmallow. Mm-hmm. He's roasting it over candles, except he lights it aflame and burns up. No, that's terrible. That's not how you make a <laughs> s'more. If you burn it like that, you're going to get that crusty char on it, which, frankly, I don't think is very tasty. you got to slow roast that thing. you got a mm-hmm. nice golden mallow Well, there. we know that Squints tells tall tales that ruin everything with the dog until finally the dog forces the issue, and then they like him. So maybe it's the same deal with Ham. He's misleading people when it comes to how to make a s'more. Nothing made me angrier in this movie than the way that Ham butchered that s'more. Were you throwing <laughs> things around your house? How could you? Hey, I was drinking a beer as I was watching this movie and just hucked it across the room. Maybe I should be surprised the DVD's not broken right now. I almost snapped it in half. You brought it back moment. for me, thank God. All right, well, I think the depiction of the sport, like I say, is 7 out of 10 realistically, but nostalgia, give it an 8. Can you score? They, I hope not. They don't really depict the sport much in this movie. There's yeah. The, like you said, They're not supposed to be very good, though, because the bully kids even say so. The only good player is Benny. And then when Smalls first sees him, oh, they look like a well-oiled machine. Yeah, considering you don't know what baseball is, they look well-oiled. They're not that good. They're okay considering they're kids, A, and B, they're not supposed to be very talented kids. But they do a lot of shagging of the balls to each other. And you get the brief montage sequence when they're playing the game against the true organized team kids of batting and hitting. But that's like, what, maybe two minutes of yeah. action, if that? It's all you ever see of the baseball. Mm-hmm. It's not like a lot of the other movies we've covered where you see a significant amount of game action. Like right? Miracle recently. Jerry Maguire didn't have that much sports. Couple Jerry Maguire, ago. no, not at all. Or virtually none. Depiction of the sport, I think you might have put it better than anything. It's a nostalgic remembrance of the sport mm-hmm. more so than it is a depiction of the sport itself, right? And from that perspective, I get it. Even if I didn't partake as a kid in the way that these kids did, I think it's a dying thing, though. I don't think this happens anymore. I think there's too much fear whether sandlots still exist in urban environments, where can you go to find like, a sandlot? Uh, when we go to our games, you and I are almost always early. They're almost always, well, often at least, kids messing around. Or even people our age messing around. It happens. But could you go there, a group of kids, every day over the summer and Not play day. for hours? You'd never right? get the field every day. Exactly. That's... Same with getting a basketball court or a tennis court in the city. Good luck. In terms of nostalgia, I kind of get the, the nostalgia for the sport, but I don't understand the nostalgia that they're depicting as far as being a kid and doing this kind of stuff. If you were to fast forward another 10, 20, 30 years, would adults from 2029 or 2039 look back at this and say, what the heck is this? I don't understand. Where's the iPad? That's the nostalgia you're going to be looking at? Maybe so. Well, maybe there's only nine boys in this entire neighborhood. No girls, obviously. You never see a girl. And, and you don't well, see except any... for the swimming pool and Wendy Pefferlaw. You never really see any Peppercorn, girls. Yeah. Peppercorn, sorry. And then, of course, the opposing team. But they may be from quite a ways away. It might be a 10-minute bike ride away. It's not like they're in that exact same neighborhood. It's yeah. just these nine boys, I guess. I like the random week-long trip to Chicago that Dennis Leary 
took as mm. well. I'm almost certain that he's got another family in Chicago. That could be. He's the stepfather of that horror movie. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> he's got families all over. He's he, a true stepfather. Yeah. And he's murdering people. All right, fun time of the movies, but nice and light. We saw a lot of deep and dark ones late last year, and then a great one that turned into a podcast like Jerry Maguire. I love that movie so much, but that was a long episode. This one's a little shorter. It's a very sweet film. It is. And we will do more of those this year, I'm sure, because we've covered so many classic, great sports movies already. Bev and I did that so much before you even started doing this with me, so we're not at the end of the barrel. There's still a lot of movies to do. There's but... still a lot of great movies like Rocky II to talk about that are... <laughs> Rocky movies don't do the well in, on this channel, I don't know. Indisputably fantastic Creed movies. Creed II with you and I last year, Creed that Bev and I did, did not do all that well. I don't know why. The only answer to that, Ryan, is to insert more Sly Stallone. Oh, wait. Hey, hey whoa. Oh, wait. You don't want to do too many of those. You don't want to kill it, you know? Like you'd... <laughs> you don't want to do too many jokers either. What would I do without you? Get them all out of your system. In two weeks, we're finally going to talk about The Love of Chris's Life, a movie I haven't seen in a long time and don't remember liking. What a build-up for it two weeks from now. But maybe if I don't like it, I'll make a better conversation. That is... <laughs> Rudy. If it turns out that I don't like this movie anymore, it's going to be a horribly disappointing. This is definitely one of the first ones you suggested we do when we talked about this well over a year and a half ago. I have distinct memories of when I was a young teenager tearing up, which for a hormonal teenager may or may not be a good sign, but also it's such a freaking iconic It has become that. Yeah, that's true. All right, we're on Twitter. He is at Scoring at Movies. I am at MovieFiend51. We're on Stitcher and Spotify and Apple Podcasts lately. I don't know why it's doing this, but it's really messing up the way that I lay it on the website. Not the website. When you post it on Apple Podcasts, but it's not doing it on Stitcher. It's so odd. If you see that, I am posting it properly, people. But I noticed with Precious that Bev and I did, and when I just posted recently, I think Christmas Vacation, it's weirdly... Anyway, go to Stitcher. Screw iTunes. <laughs> wow, going to war with Apple. <laughs> and the website is com. So take your easy, dudes. I know that you will. You're killing me here, Ryan. Killing you. I know that you will. <laughs> I know that you'll kill.